Jacqueline Wilson, The Cookmere Valley, Stay Playful. Once upon a time, there was a little girl whose head was full of stories. She was not great at things like maths and not very good at sport, so people would pick her last for games. They'd rather have anyone else but little Jackie Daydream, who spent all her time with her face buried in a book or lost in stories of her own making. This was in the days after the Second World War, when sweets and sweet things were still rationed, and everything looked drab and grey and tired, except in a child's imagination. There were arguments at home. Mum and Dad didn't get on, so the little girl would take herself off into a quiet corner and hide in other realities. She was an only child, so Jackie daydreamed about what it would be like to be in a bigger family, full of happy noise and love and company. She thought up a teenager who was very full of herself and stayed out late with her boyfriend and worried her mum terribly. Then a rather earnest girl with glasses who loved reading, another girl with plaits who was desperate to be an actress, and a pair of identical twins who kept playing tricks on people and got up to mischief. And the youngest children in her imaginary tribe were a shy little boy who got teased and a very fierce, funny little girl with an awful lot of curly hair. Jackie dreamed them up and then she wrote them down in an exercise book by hand. And on the cover she drew pictures of them all, including the mum who had worry lines on her face. And she gave the family a name which fitted the idea of there being lots of them wriggling about in the tight space of their home. They were called the Maggots. And the little girl showed the book to her teacher, who thought it was funny and smiled when she read the stories. So on the way home, Jackie skipped along the pavement, avoiding the cracks and playing a game in her head, in which she was a famous writer being interviewed about her work. And... Sixty years later, I'm on the way to see her because Jacqueline Wilson has written more than 90 books. She sold more than 40 million copies, met an American president, been made a fellow of the Royal Literary Society and is now a dame. Very few people have had the same kind of influence as her over the imaginations and impulses of the last few generations of British children and therefore subsequently adults. And all this because of the ideas and characters that have come from her brain. I know, she is going to say. Isn't it weird? And now Jacqueline Wilson is standing by the roadside, deep in the English countryside, showing me where to turn the car. The big wooden gate to her estate is open, so I turn left off the road that leads over the downs to a ridiculously pretty village and instead take the drive that snakes up the hill to her house. It's a thirties house, much bigger than I've ever lived in before, she says, glancing up at the red brick chimneys. She's a small woman with a powerful presence and her hair in a kind of mod mullet like a bright white ziggy stardust. Jackie's wearing black jeans and a big comfy-looking black hoodie jacket with a colourful scarf at her throat and several dramatic silver rings on her fingers because she buys herself one of those after finishing each novel. She was born 
in Bath in 1945, just as the war ended, and her parents lived in rented, furnished rooms in the same house as her grandparents. Her father, Harry, was a civil servant, and her mother, Biddy, dealt in antiques, and they moved to Kingston, just southwest of London, when Jackie was six. We got a council flat there, she says. My mother cried she was so happy to have her own place. The pioneering educator Friedrich Froebel said, Play is the highest expression of human development in childhood, for it alone is an expression of what is in a child's soul. And for Jackie, playing meant making things up. When it came to picking teams, everybody would say, I'll have anybody but Jackie, she tells me. I couldn't catch a ball, I couldn't throw a ball, I couldn't run fast. And it was pretty humiliating. So it was wonderful I could write stories. The maggots won her praise at school, but another story won her a way to escape. The publisher, D.C. Thompson, was looking for material for a new magazine aimed at teenage girls, so she sent off a piece about going to a posh dance and being the only one not to get off with a boy. It was jokey, warm and empathetic, written to make other girls who'd gone through the same agonies laugh a little. And as a result, Jackie was offered a job with the company up in Dundee at the age of 17. That was a daring decision to go there. But this was another way of freeing herself from the turmoil at home. I lived in the Church of Scotland Girls' Hostel, she remembers, and for a while they didn't have enough rooms for me, so the matron said, we're not turning you away, you can live in the linen cupboard. No windows or anything. Quite warm, though, I would imagine, I say. Yes, warm, she says, nodding the warmest place in the hostel, and it was a good way of making friends because we only had a fire in the girls' living rooms, and so upstairs was freezing, so loads of people wanted to be my friend and squeeze in the cupboard with me. They were funny times, but good times. There's some debate about whether Jackie magazine was named after her. It was a popular name at the time, not least because of the incredibly glamorous, but recently bereaved, Jackie Kennedy. But there's no doubt Jackie magazine became one of the best-selling publications in Britain and ran for decades. Meanwhile, the real Jackie, who was still a teenager, met a printer called Miller and married him in 1965 when she was just 19. They had a daughter called Emma Miller became a policeman. The little family moved south and Jackie never gave up on the stories. She made them up for her daughter and in time started to try and write books as well as articles. Although actually it was a very long time before she had any real success. 1991 in fact. By that time she was in her 40s. A very grown up woman with a grown up daughter but still playful and bursting with imagination. Her breakthrough was the story of Tracy Beaker, based on a stroppy teenager in a care home who longs for a family, much as Jackie had longed for siblings when she wrote The Maggots as a child. There were many sequels, and a massively popular television series based on the book, and when a poll was taken in 2003 to find the 100 most popular books in Britain, her titles were on the list, Double Act, Girls in Love, Vicky Angel and Tracy Beaker. 
The stories are mainly for children, but they include all sorts of difficult subjects like divorce, depression, alcoholism, even abuse. They always have happy endings, though. She makes sure of that. I do think it helps to see there is a character going through some of what you are going through, she tells me. Because as a child, you can feel you are unique and that nobody else ever feels the way you do. I'm trying to say, it's okay. Lots of people go through this. It will get better because you grow and you get more power and you can choose to do things. She really seems to care for those who read her. I don't like to pretend everything is wonderful, but I do like there to be hope. Let's go for a walk, she says. And so we set off, with Jackie in black moon boots picking her way past rabbit holes and brambles. If you told me, even ten years ago, that I would have a big garden and actually a field, I would have said you were completely bonkers, she says. She was very much a towny sort of person. Then circumstances changed. My mother, who was very elderly and in need of a lot of care, passed away, and I realised I was actually free to move from Kingston, where I'd lived most of my life, and live anywhere I wanted to. We can see all the way down the valley, as the shining river Cookmere snakes away to freedom in the sea. The channel is about two miles away, she says, but it does look close, so it's lovely just to open the curtains in the morning and see the sea. For a writer who can spend a lot of time indoors, this must be a good thing. You can be stuck over a piece of work, she tells me, but going for a good long tramp somewhere near to home is the way of solving everything. Great, I say, stumbling over a rabbit hole. But we don't all have our own field? No. Mind you, I feel I need a hell of a lot of training, she says. There are anthills, there are so many badgers, there are rabbits and little rodents and amazing insects. It's really got everything. It hasn't actually been properly cultivated for many years, so it's going to take some work. She pauses for breath and smiles. And, well, my job is just to admire and walk here. My partner's job is to get her strimmer and get cracking. She enjoys it. I enjoy it. The dog enjoys it too. There's an idea called Deep England which speaks to something essential, rural, idyllic about the English countryside which harks back to the illusion of a simpler, greener, quieter, happier time and could be said to be profoundly conservative but also feeds the poetry of Thomas Hardy, the painting of John Constable and the ascending lark of Vaughan Williams. And it seems to live here in this valley with the meandering river, the rising downland and the distant pretty cottages. But there's something even deeper and darker in the crow-filled trees, the chalk symbols of a horse and a giant found on nearby hills the hidden ancient burial sites and the drift of the clouds as evening falls. You also see the worrying sides of things here, she says. Just recently somebody has been setting alight the hay bales, destroying the winter feed for local farmers. 
The police are pretty certain it's arson, not just idiots mucking about, but an organised thing, and that's very worrying. Why would someone do that? I have no idea. I do wonder if it's people who are anti-farming. These are cattle farms. There are sheep too. Animals kept for the killing and the eating. So it's not idyllic, she says. Human nature is human nature, but it's still got its magic and its connections with the past. History lies visible in this landscape, with Bronze Age settlements evident in the rise and fall of the fields, and a yew tree nearby that first began to grow when the Romans were in charge. You can't help but feel some kind of connection to the place as it was, she says, and the people who lived here before. There is a kind of enchantment about the place, I say. It is fantastic, she says. The chalk horse on the hill is lovely. Nobody's quite sure why the figure of a prancing white horse was cut in chalk on the side of the hill above the river. Some say it was put there as a prank by farm boys in Victorian times. Others that it's a tribute to a lost love who fell from just such a horse. It's a beautiful, mysterious thing anyway. And hidden away from us in the distance, just over Windover Hill, is the Long Man of Wilmington, a huge white outline of a figure holding two long poles. He looks more like a woman to me, and it looks like a massive crime scene drawing, but nobody knows if it's a fertility symbol, a sacred sign, or even, as some say, a piece of giant graffiti from the Civil War that divided families around here and caused villages to oppose their near neighbours. When you come out to walk the dog at night, the stars are just incredible, she says. Even the moon seems much more beautiful from this angle. And of course, we get lovely sunrises and sunsets too. The wistful way she talks about it makes me wonder, is there a spiritual dimension to this for her? I think there has to be, but not in a specific, deliberate way. It's hard not to look up at the stars and feel almost reassured by your insignificance compared to all of this around. And just occasionally you get that sudden burst of joy, in a way, for what you see. The sudden surge of feeling connected to nature and all around you is an experience common to humans across many and perhaps most faiths and traditions, times and cultures. I'm not a religious person, but a view can move me. A beautiful painting can move me, she says. I love walking around old churches. There's a stunning one not far from here, the tiny church at Lullington, where no more than a dozen people can sit or stand at any time, and where, on a warm, still day like this one, when the door is open, the bird's song and the breeze and the insects and the spirit of the land come drifting in. The fact that people have been finding comfort or praying there for centuries or just looking at the paintings gives you a sense of continuity that is comforting, she says. We're not alone. It's touching how happy she seems to be here, tucked away. I was quite happy living in a small terraced house for many years, she says. With so many books, you were in danger of them falling on you the moment you'd stepped in the hallway. I heard she had... 15,000. Yes, but after a while I did think it would be nice to have a lot of space, she says. So this is not a house beautiful, it's not a listed house, but it's a comfy house. We can spread ourselves. Then, 
Jacqueline Wilson says, Upstairs, I've got rather strange rooms. Okay, what does she mean? I've got a kind of nursery room which has a lot of fairy tale books in it and different bits and pieces. This is a house to indulge myself in. A nursery room? Yes, with dolls and toys and many books. I do collect books. Although I don't write fairy tales, I am rather attracted to them, so I have a whole selection. Therapists often say we should connect with our younger selves for the sake of healing. So is that what Jackie's doing in that room? Well, not consciously, she says, but it makes sense. I had an odd childhood. My parents didn't get on I don't sit there playing with Barbie dolls or anything, but there are toys, mostly older toys. I do like to have things like that around me, and I suppose partly they are the sort of things I might have loved as a child. She says this with disarming honesty, but then again, playfulness is the source of her creativity. Without it, there would be no books. When Jackie had her daughter, she was only 21 years old herself, and she loved to get down on her knees and play. If she wanted me to play some elaborate imaginary game, that was sheer bliss for me, she says. I think it's good to still have a bit of child within you. I think it's good to connect with your inner child. A voice calls out, Jackson, come on! And the dog comes bounding past, half Patterdale, half Poodle. He's a rescue from Battersea Dog's home, a whippersnapper compared to their elderly cat, who is called Jacob. The owner of the voice calling the dog is Jackie's partner, Trish. Finding her was a late revelation in life. Jacqueline and Miller Wilson were married for more than 30 years, not all of them wildly happy, until the marriage broke down. She was single and content for a while. Then, like a scene from one of her books, lightning struck. On a weekend away, she met a bookseller called Trish and felt a strong sense of attraction suddenly. And being at a stage of life where she was able to just see where it went, Jackie called up the bookshop where Trish worked and asked for her address so she could write a letter and said she had enjoyed their meeting and would love to do an event together. Although... There was a little more at stake than that. I surprise myself, she says. I've always been quite open-minded, but I hadn't considered the possibility of actually having a gay relationship. But I thought, this is interesting. Unexpected too, presumably. Certainly was. I certainly wasn't a repressed person, and I had a long marriage. Then I was six years on my own, and although it got lonely sometimes, it was good for me to learn how to be independent because my daughter had long since left home. This is the interesting thing. You can meet somebody and you just click and that's that. And to me, it doesn't really matter whether they're male or female, because it's personality that matters. She reflects for a moment, hands clasped. The one thing getting older teaches you is, if this happens, don't stand back, don't let it go, go for it and that's that. It's not just age that has given her this attitude. Jackie has been through two life-threatening illnesses in recent years, heart failure and kidney failure and a kidney transplant. Trish actually donated one of her kidneys to someone else so that they could do a swap and save two lives, including Jackie's. Now that's love. Well, it is, isn't it? She grins. 
which makes it quite hard to be really cross with her if she's annoying me. But there we go. I suddenly feel the urge to tell her about one of my daughters who grew up on her stories and is now 19, and part of that generation that has rewritten the rules so that gender is less important than connection. If you love someone, you love someone. And it might be a certain kind of someone today, another kind of someone in the future. That's incredibly refreshing, I say. Yes, says Jackie. I mean, being practical, you get more choice too. We're back inside the house now, sitting together in the wood-panelled dining room with tea, talking about how Jackie and Trish went to Vermont in 2008 and married in the grounds of a Victorian hotel with a pair of friends as witnesses. She didn't say publicly that she was in a relationship with another woman until 12 years later, by which time those health challenges had brought her a new boldness. I'd always prided myself on being almost superhuman, she says. I could sign books for hour after hour and have a lot of energy. Then suddenly life pulls you up, shortens. Theoretically, she now feels like someone on borrowed time. As a survivor, but also because she's found her father's death certificate and discovered that he suffered from the same two specific problems, failure of the heart and kidney. But modern medicine and skilled people and a bit of luck have actually given me all this extra time, she says. It's made me feel more like, seize the day, do everything you want to do, and be joyful about it. I really don't want to be rude, but she's 76 years old now, and after a couple of scares, must have thought about what comes next. Trish's mother died, and she wanted to see her in her coffin she says quietly and carefully. We could see quite clearly that, although she was exactly the same woman, she also wasn't that woman at all. I found it comforting. I hope Trish did too, because you could see that her spirit, if we call it that, was not there at all. What's she hoping for herself? I rather have a hope that I might be cremated and put in a very decorative pot on a bookshelf, somewhere out of the way. She becomes thoughtful. Once Trish is gone, I think it will be down to Emma, my daughter, to scatter me, wherever. But you cling to the idea you can all stay together. She's talking about some kind of afterlife where lovers and families are reunited. I just don't know, she says. It will be interesting to find out. The stories she's told and the effect they've had on people's lives over several generations will take a long time to die out, won't they? It's a lovely thought, she says. I would like my books still to be read, but I write for today's children. Also, I suppose, for the child I was. I would have liked to read stories like my own. Not every child is the same, of course. When her daughter Emma was little, she hated any story with sadness or conflict. So Jackie had to daydream in a different way. 
I had to write her stories about very happy little girls who were allowed to wear pink all the time and eat whatever they wanted to eat and had this idyllic way of life, she says. Excuse me a moment. There's a bell ringing. Jackie looks alarmed. It's dark outside. Who could be here at this time? Was that you, says Trish, rushing in. No, says Jackie. And they exchange glances, wondering whether to answer the door. Then Jackie smiles and glances down. There's a bell there, under the carpet, she says to me. I think it was your foot. This was the dining room in the old days, and when the first course had been served, the lady of the house would press the bell discreetly, and the servants would come in and clear the dishes. What a grand, strange place for a girl from a council house, and a boy from council house, come to that, me, to find ourselves in. I can't resist it. I press the bell again, and it's funny, because Trish calls out again from the next room, and Jackie pretends to start, and I do it once more. The dog barks, and now we're all laughing. It's a lovely shared moment and gets to the heart of things. Because what Jacqueline Wilson does is let her imagination run wild. And it's brought her huge changes from a council house in Kingston to this gorgeous valley, from loneliness to friendship and family and the kind of popularity she dreamed of, and a love late in life that she never saw coming and the playing out in real life of the scenario she made up on the way home from school when she pretended to be interviewed about her books and told herself the story of Jacqueline Wilson, the great writer, which has now very much come true. A lot of people stick to the social class they were born in, she says, a type of life that's more or less the same as their parents or their grandparents. I haven't done that. I've also gone from being a very shy child who really couldn't say boo to a goose to this. She means her public life, of which our conversation is an example, although we're talking in private, in her home, her safe space, her house of dreams. I've had to go out there and give endless talks and meet up with people and put them at their ease and everything because of my books, she says. And I've become a very different, much less introverted person. You wouldn't think your personality could change, but it has done. So it's hard to get a grip on myself. Perhaps. She seems to me to have that grip. She's very good company, confident in herself, but willing to admit doubts and to explore and always, always to be playful. The power of play and the stories that flow from it have given Jacqueline Wilson an extraordinary life. No wonder she looks happy. She's still got the joy of the child discovering she can tell stories and how wonderful it is to be lost in them and to see the effect they can have on other people. I guess the lesson we learn here is to grow up and experience the world and learn things and expand your mind, but never lose sight of that inner child. And when she talks, I don't hear smugness or arrogance. I hear amazement and gratitude. I knew the way I wanted to be as a child and as a young woman, but I wasn't quite there, she says. Not many people can say this, but I have actually become what I hoped I would be.
Thank you for listening to my story about one of the great storytellers of our time, accompanied by the birds you can hear in the background. And actually, you can hear Jacqueline Wilson in a few moments speak for herself because she's been kind enough to let me have permission to share with you some of our conversation at the house that day. My name's Cole Morton. You can find me on social media and also get in touch via the hodderfaith.com website because Can We Talk is brought to you by Hodder Faith. So here is Jacqueline Wilson talking about her life. Thank you, Jackie. When children ask me, but how, how do you write? How do you get started? What is the, the good, um, good way to do it? And I always say, pretend that you are telling your best friend something and it's as if you're, you're taking hold of them and you're saying, you'll never guess what, mm-hmm. and then start and your story will just spill out mm-hmm. be, uh, as if you're just telling it just to them. Effectively, what's happened here is that the, that the young girl who has discovered stories has told the story of Jacqueline Wilson, the storyteller, hasn't she? You've, you've created that. Mm. This, mm. Is, this is your creation, right? Just inviting you to reflect on that. It, it's very weird because um, looking at photographs of myself as a child or as a as a young woman and the sort of different lives I've led, of course they're me. And the very core of of all these different Jacqueline's is the same, but they're so different because I have changed lives in so many different ways that um, I think I've... I've had a very interesting life. And for a lot of people, they they stick to the social class they were born in. They stick to a type of life that's more or less the same or with obvious modern tweaks as their parents or their grandparents mm. or whatever. And I haven't done that. And I I've also, from being very shy child who was really couldn't say boo to a goose i've because because with my books i've had to go out there and give endless talks and meet up with different people and um put them at their ease and everything um i find that i've become a very different much less introverted person i think I knew the way I wanted to be as a child and as a young woman, but I wasn't quite there. And it isn't as if I've pretended or anything, but I have actually become what I hoped I would be. And there's very few people that can say that, like you might want to be a ballet dancer when you're little, but it's astonishing if you get to be that. But then... It kind of comes full circle because my books are still popular, but times have changed. My sort of longer emotional book mm. has become less popular than they are than they were twenty five years ago, and you feel yourself 
hanging on by your fingernails. And the difficult thing is, I mean, many people have said to me, look, you've had a wonderful time. All sorts of exciting things have happened to you. You've written heaps and heaps of books. You've got enough savings to see you out and your partner out and to leave to your daughter. You've got a lovely lifestyle. What are you still writing for? And this is something I ask myself. <clears throat> but it's... I cannot imagine what I would think about each day if I didn't write. It's mm -hmm. it's that important. And I think even if there comes a time when my books aren't published anymore, I can't see me not writing. I think I'd still have to go on writing. And <clears throat> writing imaginary works, not... Um, I mean, you know, I've thought about should I write a memoir or something like that? Um, but I would find it so boring. <laughs> and I'd be tempted to make it up. And make it all up. That's yeah. the way for it. Yeah. <laughs> and yet you can't really because, you know, there are people around and then you've got to pick and choose, well, can I write about that person? <laughs> and the newspaper's supposed to be liar, Jacqueline. Yes, yeah. it would be. be a fair cop. <laughs> totally, totally. So... Um, but also, you've you've talked about. I mean, you've talked about coming here. That was unexpected. Um, you know, we we haven't talked about Trish. That was unexpected. That was a part of your life. That was certainly was. Um, and I, I certainly wasn't a sort of repressed person. Mm. Um, and I had a long marriage. Uh, I, then I was six years on my own, and. I thought it got lonely sometimes. It was actually good for me to, to learn how to be entirely independent by myself because my daughter had long since left home. Um, and that was good for me. But um, I don't know, just this is the interesting thing, I think. You can just meet somebody and you just click mm. and that's that. And to me, it doesn't really matter whether they're male or female, perhaps I'm more in tune with young people than I think <laughs> because it, it's personality that matters to me. And, and, um, and I think the one thing um, getting older teaches you is, is if this happens, don't stand back, don't let it go, you know, go mm. for it. Go and for that's it. that. Mm. Um, and also I've had two life-threatening illnesses. I've had heart failure and um, kidney failure and actually had a kidney transplant. Um, and Trish was wonderful enough to donate an organ so that they could do an organ swap so I could get somebody right. else's and her, hers could go to somebody else. Wow. And, that's love. And, well, it is, isn't it? Which makes it quite hard to be really cross with her if <laughs> she's annoying me. <laughs> but there we go. I know you gave her a kidney, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but again, these sort of experiences, because I'd always prided myself on being almost superhuman. I, I could sign for hour after hour after hour and, and have a lot of energy and rush around doing all sorts yeah. of things. And then suddenly it pulls you up sh short and shows you that, well, theoretically, I'm on borrowed time because after my mother died... I found my father's uh, death certificate and 
he died of the two things, a specific type of heart failure and a specific type of kidney failure that I've had. But modern medicine and skilled people and a bit of luck have actually given me all this extra time. Mm. But it... It did make me feel more right. Seize the day, you know. Do everything you want to do, um, and and be joyful about it. But of course, you can't keep up like that. All the time. No, it's exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> totally exhausting, and mm. and that sort of determination just leaks away, and then mm. you get fussed about the most trivial and silly mm. things. Mm. But it it's still. It, it it does give you a slightly different perspective on things. Mm. I think which. Mm which is good.